Thanks, Charlie. Appreciate it. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. And again, it's good to have you here, and it's good to have you watching online if you're watching. Hey, listen, if you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews 12. It's going to be a helpful passage for us today. I'm enjoying this campaign we're going through called Reclaiming Family, and I think today is going to be helpful. It's helpful for me to be going over these passages, and this is going to be the one that I think is going to drive the bus for us today. And listen, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Best estimates are as it was Apollos. We're not quite sure. doesn't really matter to me, to be honest with you. It is very good in showing us who Christ is and how he is revealed from the Old Testament. And today we're going to see the love of God in a very distinct way. And I'm going to start in verse 5 of chapter 12. And this is the word of the Lord for us. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay. What this passage is really good at is showing you and me that the act of discipline is actually an act of love. Discipline equals love. And that's not something to be taken lightly. That's something that is hard for us to kind of maybe connect in our minds. You know, I was in Trader Joe's not too long ago, and if you know me at all, you know I'm not real fond of my Trader Joe's trips, but I was in Trader Joe's not too long ago, and I saw a mom and her son, son was this big, and I don't know how old that is, just this big, okay, and the son was having a nuclear meltdown. We've all seen him, but this was, this was the mother of all meltdowns, meaning he was on his back, screaming, kicking her, kicking the shelf, you know, boxes of stuff popping around, kicking the basket, just totally melting down. Man, she was trying to reason with him, right, with a measured tone, with soft, measured words. She even had a little bit of a grin to show that she was not out of control of the moment, yet I promise she was not in control either. <laughs> Whether she was out of control is one thing. That kid was in control. That kid was running the show. Listen, this scene, it captures quite a bit. Right? It's not a scene that you haven't witnessed, but it shows us that there is a dilemma when it comes to parenting. And parenting is just really difficult. Right? I mean, once kids are brought into the world, there's a million opinions on how we should raise our children, with the latest innovation being that we should let them decide everything for themselves. When the kids are this big, Trader Joe's big, when they're this big, that we should let them decide their name, even their gender. We should let them decide who they're going to become in life, right? Parents are moving from the authority place. They're stepping out of the authority role, and they're becoming more facilitators to their children. That's, 
the, the drift of society, that we would become more like tour guides, letting them have uninhibited, free exploration of this world and who they are, that they could self-actualize for themselves. And I think the church doesn't really know what to do with a lot of it. Because we hear the arguments from our friends, we read it on blogs, we watch it on news, and some of it might kind of resonate, right? Especially if you're younger. If you're younger, if you would be in the, the generations, the millennial and the Gen Z generation, this might be more difficult for you than maybe my generation, Generation X, and definitely the ones older than me, right? Maybe we should let our kids raise themselves. Maybe we should let them decide some of these important things. I mean, who are we to force convention upon them? Who are we to be making hard decisions for them? They are individuals. We hear that and we think so, maybe, maybe there's some truth in that. Straight up, I am going to tell you today, I'm going to urge you today to indoctrinate your kids. <laughs> to make disciples in the home, you need to know that discipleship means indoctrination. Right? I mean, we've made it a bad word, like we're brainwashing people without their consent, like we're breaking the Geneva Convention with our kids. But to teach doctrine, to install doctrine in our kids is where we get the word indoctrination. To install doctrine into the next generation is something that God has laid out in his timeless word. When God breathed and inspired and put this word before these people, the author of the Hebrews wrote down, it was for this group of people at this time and this moment, but it wasn't without us in mind because it's a timeless word. Second Timothy 3 says that even the scripture we're going to go through today, all of it, all of it is breathed out by God and is profitable. It's profitable for you and me to teach us how to be parents, to reprove us for our parenting, to correct us in how we might parent, to train us in righteousness, that you and I would be complete and equipped for every good work, including parenting. You see, God doesn't really bow to contemporary culture's opinion, and he doesn't really apologize for triggering some of us. Not when it comes to parenting. Biblical parenting is not outdated. Our kids need our indoctrination. And, and if we do a good job, it's an act of love when we disciple our kids. I remember telling my youngest son, who he's, he's in college now, but I remember when he was this big, teaching him that there are some dogs that you can just walk up and start petting, and then there's some dogs that you probably ought not to do that, right? And I remember having this conversation with him and thinking, this is an odd thing I'm teaching. How did I figure this out? Did my dad pull me aside, or did I get bit and don't remember it, or am I just really smart, which I'm not? Right? Someone had to have taught me that. But I remember, I just remember the questions coming back. Well, Dad, I mean, can I pet that dog? Yeah, you can pet that dog, right? Because in my mind, I'm thinking that if that dog even bites, you won't even feel it, right? I mean, you can pet that dog. It doesn't matter how mad he is. But this dog over here, don't even go near it, right? Don't look at this dog. Stay far away from this dog. Now, that's a form of discipline. I'm indoctrinating my son in that moment. I'm brainwashing my son on which dogs are wise to pet and which dogs are not. And it was an act of love at the same time. Similarly, we are helping the next generation engage and maneuver a very broken world with a lot of jagged edges and a lot of bad actors and a lot of dark temptations and ruthless addictions and bad decision-making and heavy tragedies. I think just letting them discern all of this on their own, figure it out, as we stand back and cross our fingers, hoping for the best, whatever the best even is, doesn't sound very wise, and it's definitely not biblical. If you do not indoctrinate your kids, or if you don't have kids, and maybe you are a mentor, right? We have some mentors in here. 
J.P. Dooley is a part of this church, and he is a mentor. He could teach a master class on how to mentor the next generation, right? He's in his 20s. So if you're mentoring or if you're parenting, if you don't indoctrinate the next generation, the world will be very happy to step in and categorize them for you. Very happy to teach them for you. To teach them how to see themselves. Teach them how to see gender, how to see God, how to see sin, how to see salvation. It's, just not, it's not a matter of whether we are indoctrinated, but it's who's doing the work. It's who's influencing us. So I'm just saying, as parents and as mentors, do not be ashamed of gospel principles when crafting the hearts of the next generation. Don't be afraid of doing it. It's the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God to sustain us and make us satisfied. Don't give space in your heart to what the world thinks about how you disciple your kids. The world doesn't even know what it thinks about how to disciple the next generation. And as we saw in the last book of the Bible we went through, we went through the whole book of 1 Timothy, and the whole punchline is we're exiles. But we're exiles raising exiles, which means if you do a good job at this thing we call parenting, listen, the world is going to be repulsed by your kids. If you do a good job as a parent, the world is going to be angered at what your children believe. Won't be impressed with your parenting either, right? But then again, we're not called to be impressive to the world. We're called to disciple the world, to see Christ clearly and to enjoy him. So letting our kids be free thinkers and self-explorers in this crazy world, it might seem like a noble thing, like a logical thing. I'm going to submit to you today, and I'm going to show you some passages. I think it's the core of being unlovely, unloving. Even, even lazy. It's letting them pet pit bulls. But I'm going to call it now. I think in about 10 to 15 years, we will see as a church, the Church of America will see the damage from allowing kids to discern their own hormone therapy path. The surgeries that kids are allowed to go through now, I think the church will have to have a voice for that in about a, a dozen years. I think we're going to have to be fluent in that. I'm not even so sure we're fluent on what gender dysphoria does to a person today. But that's something we're going to have to be ready for, right? So listen, I watched this meltdown, this mom, like I said, and I wondered what this boy would be like when he was 13 or 33 or 53. Right, don't judge me. You've wondered the same thing. What are they going to be like when they grow up? His uninhibited free thinking at its best had led him to the back of the ground just kicking and screaming, throwing insults because he did not get what he wanted. How do you think she felt in that moment? We're totally just speculating. How do you think she felt? Do you think she was confident in her parenting philosophy? Do you think she was fine with that? Maybe she wanted some help. Maybe she wasn't sure. Maybe she was ashamed, ashamed of herself, ashamed of the kid, ashamed of the situation. I don't know. I, see, I don't have any backstory on the mom or the toddler, and you know that there was one, right? I know I was tempted to be angry. I was tempted to be angry because this kid was ruining my uh, Trader Joe's experience, which is easily ruined, right? But I mean, those things are the size of a Weigel's, so he, he totally took over the whole store. You can't just go down an, eye, an aisle and it's behind you. It's everywhere, right? I was upset. I was upset and angry and tempted to be very angry because she wasn't parenting like I wanted her to parent. Heck, I didn't think she was adulting like I wanted her to be an adult in that moment. I was angry that this kid wasn't complying. But most of all, I judged her. 
I judged her. But here's the thing. I don't know how she was raised. For all I know, she was abused physically growing up by an oppressive pair of parents. And so the idea of any kind of discipline in any shape or form to her kid would have been really hard, harder than it would be for me. I don't know if the kid had a learning disability. That changes things. What if the kid was on a medication? What if the child was fostered? These are all nuances that changes the picture. Whether you like that kind of parenting or you hate that kind of parenting, the very common example that we see in it is that it's just really hard to bring up kids. It's really hard to mentor the next generation, whether you're a parent or a mentor. Because we live in a world where shaping a generation is going to always refuse to be easy. But the Bible speaks to us in this. So stay where you're at. That's going to be the main passage. But in Ephesians 6, Paul is speaking to a young church, much like ours. And he says this in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Two things, discipline and instruction in the Lord. By the way, this is not exclusive from mothers. I mean, he's speaking to fathers because they are the head, the representation of the direction of the family, right? And if anything, this passage was, it was incredibly revolutionary because it pivots the heart of a father. Back then, a father didn't have to give a flying rip about how the kid felt. If they felt provoked, triggered, upset, sad, that's the kid's problem. Now, because the gospel changes a dad, the gospel changes a dad's heart. Now the father pivots towards the emotional development of their child, a.k.a. their feelings. How do they feel is now important. Parents are now to understand because how the gospel has reshaped them that their authority is not just to force compliance whenever the kids are inconvenient, whenever their behavior is not a certain way. But now their authority is to be wielded to disciple their children to enjoy God, to love Jesus, to thrive. Listen, just as marriage, and I've said this before up here, just as it makes its best sense when seen through the gospel, so does parenting. It only makes its truest sense when seen through a gospel frame. But still, even if you have the gospel, even if you're very gospel fluent, you enjoy the gospel, parenting is still hard. It's very difficult. We have a lot of doubts about how we do it, especially when it comes to discipline. We're going to talk about that for a little bit, discipline, right? Because that's not a third rail. But in Proverbs 19, it says, discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Understand the contrast the, 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 pro, the proverb is putting before us. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Here's a common statement that I find with parents, particularly moms, but parents in general. I'm unsure of how to dis dis discipline my kids, but I'm pretty sure what I'm doing is not right. I'm unsure on exactly how to do it, but I'm pretty sure what I'm doing now is not good or not working, right? Because culture says to do it a certain way. The Bible says to do it a totally different way. You grew up with a third experience. Your friends are saying some fourth way that they read on a blog was the best way to do it. And you're not quite sure. And the, and the kids, their personalities are a little different, so that might, that might change things. And then they grow older every year, and that also changes things. So what do we do? What's right? And by the way, when I say discipline, your mind is most likely to run to physical correction. Whoopings. Whack. That's probably what you're going to think, right? I mean, that's the first thing I would think. 
We conflate the two. We take discipline and punishment and correction, and we pretty much ground them all up into a blender and make them mean one thing. We see discipline as punitive. That's typically what triggers in our mind. We don't really see it as forming or restorative or anything beautiful. Now, discipline means more than correction, but it doesn't mean less than correction. So whenever you're snuggled up with the kiddos and you are telling bedtime stories and you're snuggling and you're praying and you're laughing, listen, that is discipline. You're forming your kids. I'm just thinking broad picture of the word where we honor the word the most. When you teach them financial stewardship when they're 15, that's discipline. You're training them. When you help them with bullies and zits and menstrual cycles and car repairs and try to explain homelessness, and they watch you fight as parents. They watch you argue. They watch you laugh. You make mem- That's all discipline. We're disciplining our next generation to see God rightly, to enjoy the gospel. Discipline will hold hands with discipleship. That's why this is important for us today. Discipline holds hands with it. You can't have discipleship without discipline. <laughs> Not good anyway. And discipline, when it is done well, it will produce disciples. Do you see how hard I'm having to work to unwire this connection that discipline means whooping, that it means spanking? But the rod is addressed in the Bible, and not a few times, a lot. The rod is addressed, and that might be a part of discipline. But discipline, it's not less than the rod, but it is more. And even, if I say, even as I say rod, some of you, if you're not used to the Bible, maybe church is not something you're used to, you haven't read very far into this thing, you're like, Rod, what is he talking about, Rod? It just means a, 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 a tool of corrective physical discipline, right? I was counting the ways this morning of all the ways I was whooped growing up, right? And I was telling the story to my, my littlest one the other day about how when I was in middle school, I misbehaved at grandma's and grandma told me to go get a switch off the tree because that's how old I am. And I thought, a switch? What is a switch? And so I had her explain to me, what is a switch? And when she was done, I realized she was asking me to go, not asking, she was firmly asking me to go get a branch off the tree so she could turn this branch into an instrument of correction for me. I've been whooped by switches, fly swatters, books, belts, and paddles. All of those things would be called the rod in the Bible. Now, the rod means more than that, and we're going to get to that, but that would be included in the rod. Proverbs 13 says this, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Right? Proverbs 22, folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So here's the interpretation you can pull from all three of those Proverbs. If you love your kids and you fulfill your role as a parent, you will use correction in some shape or form to drive folly away from your kids. That is if you love them. That is if you love them. Listen, if you want to know more about that, on our website, if you scroll down to the blog area on the front page, there's a resource list of some brilliant women of God who have discussed how you can use the rod in various forms of discipline to point your children to God, right? Maybe it'd be helpful if you heard it from them as well, because I know it's being engendered in the mind right now, but Luke, I don't want to hit my kid. Luke, if what you're talking about is hitting my kid, I don't want to do it. And see, and that's exactly what the world does. The world will reform something like this into abuse, hitting, 
world is good at doing this. At taking things that are righteous and making them look unrighteous and taking things that are unrighteous and making them look righteous. Spanking is seen as abusive today. The Bible is clear that disciplining our kids is not abuse or it doesn't have to be. And I know that might make some of you angry just as I say that, maybe even fuming. Listen, don't email me, okay? I'm the mailman today. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. The argument that you have is with your heart and the word of God. It is not with me right now. It's not. But I will say there is a way to discipline kids in such a way that they see consequence and grace. There is a way to discipline our kids so that they see what the law requires, the law of blessing and curse, where they see that in action, that that our actions do have consequences and that they see grace, that God gives to us favor totally despite us. And we can do it at the same time. For instance, here's a big rule when it comes to disciplining our kids, however that discipline might look. Never do it in anger. Never discipline your kids in anger. Because God doesn't discipline us in anger. Remember, we're teaching our kids, even in how we discipline them. He doesn't do it. We, we imagine God, whenever we are disciplined, as we just read in Hebrews, we imagine him to be whooping us as hard as he can with this big frown on his face. And then whenever he is done, he pushes us somewhere else and says, I don't want to see your face. Go to your room. Shut the door behind you. I need some space. That's how we think of God, which is why the author of Hebrews is going through all of this trouble to say things a certain way. So if this is true for you, you need to know that the wrath of God does not go past the cross for his kids. That there is a dif- there's a difference between punishment exhausted on the cross and discipline reserved for his family, reserved for his kids. So if you're in that moment of anger as a parent, reset the moment and however you need to do it. Take a minute, take a walk, do whatever you need to do. But don't use power to bend your kids into compliance because they inconvenience you because you will be teaching them something that is very hard to unteach. Very hard. One of the things I would do with my youngest kids just to maybe put some skin on this is whenever I would have to discipline them, I'd have to correct them. I would bring them into the room, and I would tell them how happy I was to be their dad. I was just their biggest fan. I was so thankful to God that they were in my household and not another household. How I was so excited about the years we had together. And I'm going to whoop them. And I'm going to spank them. But I'm not furious with them. But I have to do this to love them the best that I can love them. I would spank them appropriately, no anger. And then this is what you do. I'd hug them, kiss them, love them, go make a memory together. Because I don't want to reinforce in this, in this life of theirs that once dad is done disciplining me, he can't see me anymore. There's got to be some time separation, some buffer of time where we're not good until I guess later on where we're good again. Because that's the way he'll grow up and that's the way he'll see the discipline of the Lord. And I just cannot afford that for my kids. Now listen, some nuances when it comes, and this is where you're going to need to hear me clearly. There are some nuances that require wisdom. The rod is a kingdom principle, not an event with a paddle. It's a kingdom principle, right? After all, the rod has to evolve with the kid. Agreed? The rod obviously evolves. I mean, listen, if you're a dude in here, I'm not saying girls haven't done this, but if you're a dude, I know you've done this, where mom or dad have said to you at some point in your life, that's it, I'm wearing you out, you're getting a whooping, and in the back of your mind, you're thinking, 
I mean, do what you got to do, right? I think we both know it's not going to hurt, though. I mean, I think, I think you, we get it. I'm a little old for that. But if it makes you feel better, you can whoop me. We all have that rattling around, and we can see it in their eyes. They see that we know, and we know that they know, and that's where discipline starts to change. That's because the rod's not the same thing for a 6-year-old that it is for a 16-year-old, right? It evolves. It evolves. And different kids are better disciplined in different ways. If you've got multiple kids, you'll probably already know this. One, this is why Russell Moore says it far better than I could. He says, one parents a Joseph differently than a Samson, a David differently than a Jeremiah, or a Peter differently than a John. We must bear the burdens of each child in unique ways, and this reflects the fatherhood of God who knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. Super wise. You see, this is what the rod is for you and me as a principle. Pain now because it's not very fun, life later. It teaches the rule of law, that there are consequences to our actions. Your child, just like when you were a kid, your child longs to know that there is structure to this world. We are all, (laughs) we all grow desperately wanting to know that there are ultimate rights, there are ultimate wrongs, and there's an ultimate justice that will come by and balance the ledger. It's excruciate it's a nightmare to not know those things to be true listen even if your kids act like they hate your guts they want to know that chaos is to some degree hemmed in by a deep degree of order corrective discipline brings safety to our kids but neglecting discipline is never going to display the truths that make your gospel story such a beautiful one to tell i mean think about it think about it our actions are against a cosmic supreme god which means that we have cosmic consequences. And justice comes along and it's going to demand punishment. And there will be justice. So God in his goodness, in addition to being this just, is graceful. And he receives the just punishment himself. He receives it himself. So now we have this father who disciplines us. Why discipline and not punishment? Because punishment was left back at the cross, exhausted to the last drop. So if you are, in fact, in Christ, punishment is in your rearview mirror. Punishment is behind us. Discipline is before us. Punishment is for criminals. Discipline is for kids. You see how this works? Ignoring a misbehaving child or punishing an anger out of inconvenience ruins the story. It ruins the story. Do you see how even how you discipline and disciple your kids can be framed by the gospel of justice and grace. There is a better way. So when we indoctrinate our kids, ingrain our kids to see the pillars of the gospel, they will grow to have a stronger foundation in life. Well, let's be honest, this is hard work, isn't it? Long work. Doesn't seem to show the results that we want to see as parents. This is why this is the last statement that I think parents are saying constantly to themselves if they're not even saying it out loud. I don't see any fruit, and I'm fearful that my life has lost a little bit of meaning and value. Right? This is probably more particularly true for moms, although it can be for dads. I've just learned over the years that when dads feel a sense of meaninglessness and a loss of value, it's typically attached and tethered to work. With moms, it's typically the kids. 
again, I'm sweeping very wide. Don't email me. I can't speak to everyone's situation, but that's just what I've found to be the case most of the time. Bringing up kids can feel monotonous. Much of the work of a parent, particularly a mom, is repeated tasks. Uncelebrated ones too, right? Repeated tasks. Bathing, washing clothes, cleaning high chairs, prepping meals, diapers, driving the same way to the same places to get the same things on the same days. And that's life, right? Only to repeat the next week. And you had dreams, and you went to college, and this is what you're doing, right? And then you go to Legacy once a year, and they give you a chocolate bar out in the foyer, right? (laughs) This sameness of a mom's life, or even a parent, just a parent in general, feels monotonous. And monotony tricks us into feeling that we have no value, none at all. Especially if your primary goal was to achieve in the world what the world says is valuable, which, can we face it, is not motherhood anymore. It's not valuable to be a mom. If you're a mom in today's world, you are seen as one who just gave up on your goals. One who settled for second best, for something not as awesome. And to make it even worse is social media showing a perfectly assembled mom building a perfectly assembled business while you tried to steal a nap from no sleep. And then you see it, and they've got their perfectly assembled kid with the backdrop of a perfectly assembled home with a perfect post. And you're in your sweats with no makeup, cleaning Cheerios off the floor. And you're wondering, man, what has happened to my life? Our culture fawns over thrill and adventure and accomplishment. And raising kids just feels the opposite of all of those things. The opposite. All you can see, though, is the filtered and polished and the influential. And it's going to make you feel invisible. And it's going to make the sameness of your days feel even more bleak. Let me just say to you if that is anywhere close to true. Just because the world is not cheering you on does not mean your small repeated tasks are unimportant. I'm going to argue the very opposite. Sameness is beautiful. And without it, the gospel is broken in half. Without the attribute of sameness, the gospel no longer works and we are all doomed to hell. We're all doomed. Hebrews 13, 8. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. James picks up the torch and he says in his first chapter, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see some attributes. An attribute of God is a characteristic of God, right? And in this case, we're looking at the sameness. The Bible doesn't seem to understand sameness is valuelessness. Or meaninglessness. It doesn't see it the same way. This is the attribute of God that creates safety for you and me. Security. Could you imagine if God was not same? If he did shift? If there was variation in shadow? Could you imagine? If he loved you on Monday and decided you just weren't as impressive on Tuesday? Could you imagine that he had favor on you in one season of life because I guess you behaved well but not in another? Or maybe he was just having a bad day. Or maybe he just changed the rules. Maybe he decided that something wasn't a sin anymore. Or maybe something that was good is now no longer good. Could you imagine if the landscape shifted when it came to this attribute? I'm so glad it does not. His law is the same. His truth, his mercy, his grace, 
his justice, his power, his closeness, his sovereignty. It is all the same. None of it shifts. And you could spend a lifetime, you could spend a million lifetimes and then a million more exploring the depth and the nuance and the texture of who God is, and he's the same. And he's the same. And you would never come away with that thinking he has no value. He's always the same and never without meaning. Always unchanging, never without purpose. Listen, we could teach that to our kids. And you know what does it better than anything? A mom's life. A, a, a forgettable, invisible list of uncelebrated tasks done from day to day to day will teach the sameness of God to the next generation. This is how Ann Swindell says it. She's a mom, an author, and speaker. She says it better than I do. She says, our children need stable routines and predictable interactions to point them to God and help them make sense of the world. The daily repetitions that seem boring to us are a gift to our children. What we might consider boring, God considers valuable. The daily act of caring for children is a worthy and beautiful task that reflects his daily care for us. You can get her full blog post on our website. I just want you to know that you're displaying God's beauty through unnoticed and uncelebrated tasks. I wonder about this mom at Trader Joe's I keep going back to. If she looked at her kid and regretted the child for disrupting her career trajectory. Maybe she's missing out on some adventure. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. Your child is not keeping you from being satisfied with this life. Your children do not keep you from being content with this life. If you're discontent as a mother, that's a gospel fracture. It's not a family one. When we're bored and locked into this life of sameness, drained by all our parenting efforts, it reminds us that our hearts can only be satisfied by Christ. That's it. The exhaustion, the boredom we feel, it reminds us that what we do here on earth, it's not for our own fulfillment. It's for the purpose of glorifying God, making disciples, making missionary disciple leaders out of our kids who will enjoy Jesus for the rest of their lives and make others who will do the same. We can ask God to give us fresh eyes in the middle of our days of sameness. Do you know you can do that? You can ask the Holy Spirit to give you an eternal perspective that gives you grace for your kids, a satisfaction with your parenting. Not for yourself, but for your child even. We can ask for endurance to parent, joy to parent, patience. You know, patience and endurance are two different things. And when you endure, you're struggling through a season, a situation, a thing. Patience is with people. We need them both. And the Holy Spirit can bring both to us in his power and in his strength. Paul tells the Galatian church in chapter 6, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Listen, disciple making is wearying work. It is hard work. And this is what I want you to know. And this will be the last big thing I say. God is growing them and, listen, mom, listen, dad, he's growing you. You're being discipled too. I always imagined this in my mind before my kids came, that me and Paula, we would show how competent we were to raise these kids. I was so impressed with us as a couple, a young couple before kid number one. I was so impressed with our competency. I would look at, at the Trader Joe's mom, and I would judge, and I would judge, and I would judge. I would look at other people and think, well, my kids aren't going to turn out like that kid. Because me and this girl, we got to figure it out on this parenting thing. 
We're a dream team. This is what I learned instead. That it would be my incompetence and my weakness and my failures that would be revealed in parenting. What we learned was that we needed grace just as much as our kids did. (laughs) You've got to reset and rest in your mind that your failures and your flaws through those God is shaping you and conforming you as much as you are conforming and shaping your kids. So parent, parent your kids. Parenting grows your kids. And parenting grows you. Give them grace. And then take some grace yourself. Receive some grace yourself. He's giving it to you as well. So let's go ahead and stand up. We're going to take communion together as we end this. And I just want to call us all to a moment of repentance too. As we stand up and as we start to maybe drive this part of our sermon into the next part. There is room for us to repent. Allowing the culture to dictate to the church how the church should discipline, disciple, and love our kids. That requires repentance. Becoming facilitators and tour guides to our kids instead of authorities is going to require some repentance. Listen, disciplining our kids out of anger is going to require repentance. Ignoring the misbehavior is going to require repentance. Using our anger to bend the behavior of our children because we are inconvenienced is going to require our repentance. Discipling without the gospel, teaching things we ought not to teach is going to require repentance. There's a lot to repent for. There's also room to rest and celebrate with passages like that. That in the midst of our failures and our regrets with what we've done, God is going to work in the midst of it all. That if God can't work through our broken mistakes, he's not going to have anything left to work with. Right? Grace is for parents too. And listen, if you're here and you would consider yourself far from God or you're watching online right now and you'd consider yourself far from God, let me just remind you of a couple of the passages. Punishment, the punishment of God, is either going to fall at the cross or it's going to fall at your feet. But justice will be had. The cosmic justice will be had. And God has no variation, no shadow due to change, and he is the same today, tomorrow, and forever. So that's not going to change. So I'm just going to submit that you would come to his fathering, his love. Don't spurn the invitation to embrace and enjoy a good dad. A good dad, a dad who is overjoyed over his family, a dad who loves his kids, a dad who is gracious, a dad who is merciful, consistent, a dad who is always present. Dad who will never punish you, but he will, he will discipline you. And when he does, it is the deepest form of love that he can show in that moment. That's what I would submit to you. And then just as we take communion together, and as I say all the time, if you're not a part of legacy but you are a Christian, we do invite you into this moment, right? But if you're not a Christian and you are far from God, I don't invite you to take communion. I want you to really pray and consider taking Christ. Submitting your life to Christ rather than this moment. This moment's a memorial for the church. It's a moment for the church, what we would call a family meal, where we all get together and we take communion together. Because it shows us that God's parenting came at a cost. God's parenting cost him a son. He gave his only son. In fact, he gave himself to you and me, villains. So his broken body and his blood created this 
family that we call the church. And it's from this family that we marry each other and we make families and we make babies who will go and do the same thing. And this common meal celebrates the cornerstone of our parenting. So let me pray for you and we'll take communion together. Father, I thank you for being good to us. You broke yourself on the cross so that we would no longer be punished but disciplined. In fact, what happened on the cross, why there was a body broken and why there was blood spent was because punishment was perfectly executed at the perfect time and at the perfect moment to the perfect degree to cancel out all the cosmic sins that I have committed, that your kids have committed. So when we take this bread, we take it in your name and in remembrance of what you've done. Go ahead and take the bread. And Lord, we thank you for the blood that was spilt to gather us and call us family. That we're not ever disciplined and told to go into another room. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that as soon as we are done sinning, we can immediately collapse at your feet and say, Father, and you embrace us as kids. You don't want us to go far away. You want us to stay tight. You want us to be as close to you right after we sin as we did before we sin. And your blood made this happen. A perfect king, a perfect savior bled so that we could have that access to you. And it was punishment that made this blood spill. Not the punishment for Jesus being Jesus, but the punishment for Jesus being me. So as we take this, we do so in remembrance of you, Father. And so, Father, I pray for those in here who when we talk about parenting, it's hard because they've tried to be parents and they can't. And so it's a wound. They would love to experience this thing called parenting. And I pray just as we said before the service started, that your grace would find them. That you would care. That you would love. If you'd show them the depth of who you are, that the proximity would be so tight that they would have no, there would be no mistaking that you love them and that you call them close, loved, thought for, not alone. Lord, I pray for those who are far from you today, Lord, that you would shape hearts, the heart of stone that is unable to feel, or that you would exchange it for a heart of flesh and says, oh my God, what have I done? And then looks to your cross and says, oh my God, what have you done? Lord, I can't do that. No sermon can do that, but you can do it. And faith does come by hearing. So I pray that in this moment, you'd be changing hearts, not just in this house, but in churches across the city, that there would be radical salvations today, that the family of God would grow today in Knoxville. And Father, I pray for those of us who are parents, doing boringly forgettable things, trying to figure it out, trying to figure out what discipline looks like, trying to figure out how, what, what meaning and value of a day looks like. Lord, that you would show us that you give us grace as we walk through that. As we try to figure it all out, you give great grace because you're a good God. So we celebrate that. Celebrate how much you love us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.